A lame beggar calls out for alms, as those who would worship at the temple pass him at the gate. But when this man draws the attention of two former fishermen, he gets something he never expected to receive. Welcome to the Bible Study Hour, a radio and internet broadcast with Dr. James Boyce, preparing you to think and act biblically. As a lame man first stands, then runs, and jumps for joy, he attracts the attention of the crowd and opens the door for Peter's second great sermon to the very people responsible for the crucifixion of the Messiah. Stay with us now as Dr. Boyce investigates the healing of a crippled man, the first of many miracles, and an ominous message delivered to God's chosen people. When we first began to study the book of Acts together some weeks ago, I pointed out that one of the characteristics of this book is that it's a transition book. It's somewhat like Joshua in the Old Testament. Joshua is a transition between the days of Moses, the days of wandering, the days of preparation, and then those days of settling in in the land when the people had homes and houses and there were established forms of government and so on. The book of Acts is something like that. Even its position in the New Testament would indicate that. It comes between the Gospels and the Epistles. When we begin to read the book, the Lord Jesus Christ is still here. And all of the characters that we come across in these early pages of the books are people that knew him and uh, were those who traveled about with him during the days of his ministry and witnessed his resurrection. They speak about these things. But then as we go on through the book, we begin to come to people who did not have that experience. Paul himself, though he was an apostle, figures so strongly later on in the book, didn't live with Christ during the days of his earthly ministry. And in addition to that, we come to people like Timothy and Titus, Aquila and Priscilla and Apollos and and many others who were gathered eventually out of the Gentile mission of the church, but didn't have their roots in Palestine at all. And so the flow of the book is from those early days in Jerusalem to Rome, the capital of the empire, which is where the book ends. The book is a transition in other ways also. It's a transition from an age in which the miraculous was very prominent, to an age which, although we wouldn't want to say the miraculous was excluded, nevertheless uh, an age much more like our own. When we come to the end, we're dealing with a man, Paul, with whom we can easily identify, establishing churches with whom we can easily identify, and the kind of problems they have are our problems. So this, this book is very important for that. The beginning, as I said, we, we have some miracles. We have less of them as we get to the end. I, I say that because here in this third chapter, as we study it together, we find the first of these miracles. There's really a bridge here to what we were told about in the previous chapter, because as Luke was describing that early fellowship of believers, he said in verse 43, everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. This was a period in the church when the apostles were present and when they were doing, by the power of God, many miraculous signs. Now we come to the very next chapter, chapter 3, and here we have Luke beginning to show us at least one of these. 
There are not going to be a whole lot. There are a few that come later on. But he's at least showing us one, and that one is important because it was the occasion for a second sermon of Peter's, the second one that we have here in the book, and also because it led to the first outbreak of persecution, which we're going to find in chapter 4. So this is selected with great purpose on Luke's part as he writes this, and it's very significant for its own sake and also for its, its place in the structure of the book. Now, the miracle itself is interesting. We're told that Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer, and there again we have a tie-in with what we found in the previous chapter, because we were told there that one of the things that the early church did was to gather together in the temple courts and to pray, to take part in the prayers. The time would come when God would produce a break with that formal Judaism. But that hadn't come yet. They were still Jews as well as Christians, and they were there taking part in the worship that their people had engaged in for so many hundreds of years. There were Peter and John going up to the temple, and as they went up to the temple to pray at the, at the third hour, three o'clock in the afternoon uh, here, uh, they met this man who had been placed there at the gate of the temple, the gate beautiful to beg, because uh, he was lame, he was unable to walk. He was in a bad way, but uh, his friends at least, if not himself, had put him in a good position. Here he was at the very entrance to the courts where people would go to pray once in the morning regularly and once in the afternoon at three o'clock, and I suppose he thought, and thought wisely, that it would be difficult for them to go up and pray to God and to uh, offer heartfelt worship to God if just a moment before they had walked by a, a poor man who needed help there at the entrance to the temple court. So he was in the right place. And as Peter and John went by, they stopped and they, they looked at him. We're told here that Peter fixed his attention on him and then demanded that the man fix his attention on them. He said, look at us. Now, that's what that man wanted. I can imagine that uh, if his experience was that of most uh, people who are begging, poor, that most people, in spite of the fact that they were going up to pray, would simply have walked by. There's somebody that is needy, and you don't want to help them in their need. You try not to notice them. And that's what would have happened. But when Peter and John stopped, looked at him, and said, now you look at us, fix your attention on us, this man must have looked up very hopefully. I don't know what they begged with in those days, but if he had a tin cup, I imagine he held the cup out to them because he imagined that if they stopped to look at him and were trying to get his attention, why, it must be because they had something to give him. And so he thought, ah, this, this is a good day. These people are going to give me something, uh, something good. And then... Peter had this great saying, verse 6, silver or gold I do not have. Now you have to stop there, you see, and see what's happening. Silver and gold I do not have. Man wanted silver and gold. And then as his eyes are downcast and his cup is lowered, Peter goes on. And Peter says, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. It's really worth thinking about that a little bit. It was certainly to Peter's credit that he could say both parts of that sentence. It was to his credit, first of all, that he could say, silver and gold I do not have. 
There's a story from the period of the Renaissance that, uh, as I have come across it in different places, has different characters involved, which always makes a story like this suspect. But the version I like best involves uh, St. Thomas Aquinas. He was in Rome, and he was with a cardinal or a pope, and they were walking along the street, and the uh, cardinal saw uh, a beggar, and reaching in his pocket, he pulled out a silver coin and gave it to him. And then he turned to Aquinas, the great doctor of the church, and said to him, well, Thomas, we can no longer say, as Peter did, silver and gold, have I none? And Aquinas replied to him, yes, that is true, but neither can we say, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Now, it was to Peter's great credit that he could say both things. Uh, it has always been true in, in the church that some have used religion, and not just in Christianity and other forms of religion as well, as a means of acquiring wealth, and we see much of it today. Peter was not one of those. I guess in the early church there was somebody who kept the money. Later on we find that uh, there was a treasury and they distributed from it to those who had need, but Peter had not dipped into the treasury. Perhaps he had learned something from the case of Judas, who we're told in the Gospels did do that. He, he kept the purse and he dipped into it, used it whenever he had a need. Peter wasn't doing that. And so when Peter went up to the temple to pray, he could honestly say, I don't have any silver or gold on me. I don't have any money. And perhaps it's because of that that he was particularly close to God and would say, as he did in the second part of the sentence, but I am going to give you what I have. And that is, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, walk. And then he reached down and he took that man by the hand. And Luke, who records this with particularly vivid language and perhaps was interested in it from the point of view of a physician, uh, records how strength flowed into that man. And perceiving at once that he had been changed and that he could respond, in the name of Jesus, rose up and he was restored to health and he was so exuberant in his newfound health that the language literally leaps as it flows along just as he leaped. We're told that he went with them into the temple courts walking and, and jumping and praising God. It was really a great, great day. And the people who knew the man because they had gone in and out of that gate many, many times and they had seen that man sitting there paralyzed many, many times. There was no question about who he was. You know, in the case of the man who had been born blind, there was some question whether he was the same man, perhaps because when his sight was restored, it changed his appearance so much. People said, now, is this really the man who was blind? There wasn't any doubt in this case, in this case of the man who had been paralyzed. And they understood at once what had happened. A great miracle had happened by the same power that had been displayed at Pentecost in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And so all the people gathered around and said that they were filled with, with wonder and were astonished and came running to Peter and John, and Peter began to preach this great second sermon. Now, it's worth thinking about that sermon a bit. When we were studying the second chapter, I did the same thing with the sermon of Peter that we find there, and as we come to this one, we find a quite different sermon, quite a, a, a different circumstance, it's what you would expect, and yet the same elements are present. Because Peter, regardless of the circumstance, was trying to do the same thing. He was trying to point them to Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Savior of the world. And so that's what we find as we begin to study it. Now, look at these features. First of all, just as in the Sermon at Pentecost, it focused on Jesus. I guess it would have been 
possible for Peter to focus on something else. He could have focused on the miracle itself. He could have said, now, this really is something very interesting, and I want you to make sure that you understand that this really is a miracle. Look at this man. Now examine him. Let's all get around here. And uh, I suppose he could have done that. It could have turned into a testimony service. He could have said, now, brother, you have been healed. Here's your chance to give a testimony. Stand up and give a testimony. He could have done that. He could have focused, as some preachers do, on himself. He could have said, let me tell you about my experience. This is in the name of Jesus, but let that go for a minute. Let me tell you how I first came uh, to be part of this, this thing that's going on here today. He could have done that. But that isn't what Peter does. Peter says, men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. And that's where the emphasis of the entire sermon lies. Something else about it, in speaking of Jesus, Peter inevitably is biblical. I say that because this sermon is not so obviously biblical as the previous one. When we were studying the sermon at Pentecost, I pointed out that there are three great texts that Peter focuses on. The text in Joel, second chapter that has to do with the coming of the Spirit in the last days, and then Psalm 16 that has to do with the resurrection, and finally Psalm 110 verse 1 that speaks of God's exaltation of the Christ, the Lord to his right hand. Those texts are very prominent, and the way Peter preached that sermon was to quote the text at length and then explain it. It isn't quite so obvious in this second sermon, though as we'll see when Peter gets to the end, he does quote from the 18th chapter of Deuteronomy and from the 22nd chapter of Genesis. It's biblical, all right, but here at the beginning at least, it's biblical in a more indirect way. The reason I say that is because when Peter refers, as he does in verse 13, to Jesus as God's servant. He uses the word, it occurs here in the text, pais, which in the Septuagint is the translation for the word servant, as it occurs in the 52nd chapter of Isaiah, verse 12, where it begins to introduce that section of that great prophecy, which tells about the suffering servant of the Lord. Some of our, our versions the King James, for example, says his son Jesus. The word is actually servant, and it's a reference to Isaiah 53. I think Peter had that in mind. The, the servant of the Lord was a, was a concept known in Israel because of Isaiah 53 and the other chapters that deal with it. And when he goes on to say his righteous one, his holy one, as he does later on, titles for the Christ that also appear in Isaiah 53, I think it's pretty clear that this is what he has in mind. What he's talking about here, though he doesn't in this case quote a verse explicitly, is this great fulfillment of Isaiah 53 by Jesus as he died for our sin in our place, bore our transgressions, and so on. When he talks about him, he has a certain summation of the important things about Jesus that he mentions. One is that it is Jesus Earlier, when he spoke to the man who was paralyzed, he referred to him as the Christ of Nazareth, that is the earthly Jesus. This is not some mystical, imaginary, philosophical uh, Jesus that he's proclaiming. This is the Jesus they all knew, the Jesus who lived in Nazareth, 
and who traveled about the country and whom he had known and of whom he is a witness, that Jesus, but that is the same Jesus who died and rose from the dead by the power of God. Well, you see, he's, he's not retreating into mysticism or some kind of abstract the- theology. At the same time, he's not naturalizing or de-supernaturalizing the gospel. Is that Jesus all right? But that Jesus is the Son of God who is raised from the dead. This is the one we proclaim to you. So the sermon focuses, as we would expect it to focus, on Jesus. When you think about Christianity, is that what you think? Do you realize that Jesus Christ is the center of it? Oh, there's a, there's a lot more. A lot of things we talk about in addition to that, but properly understood, all those other things relate to him in some measure. Without Jesus Christ, you don't have Christianity. That's what it is. To be a Christian is to have a personal relationship to him, and that's what Peter was preaching here in these very early days of the history of the Christian church. And secondly, I want you to see that he emphasizes here, even more so than he did in the previous sermon, the sins of his hearers. And he does it in a very personal way. I notice that in this section where he begins to talk about their sin, he uses the word you, the second person plural. He does it four times. Now, he only used it in the previous sermon in that way once. You look at the previous sermon in chapter 2, you find that the word you occurs a number of times. When he's talking about sin, it's only once that he speaks that way, and that's in verse 23. You, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. That's pretty blunt, all right. But uh, I guess as Peter reflected on that and, and got a little better, you know, anybody will improve with practice. When he got around to preaching it the second time, he figured, you know, that's a point that really deserves emphasis. So in this sermon, when he began to speak about their culpability, he says, You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. Now that's pretty powerful. You have to remember that Peter was doing this in the very city where these very people had called out against Jesus, saying, crucify him, crucify him, at the instigation of their leaders. And here is Peter speaking to those same people, perhaps with those very leaders looking on, because they were very concerned about what was going on in the city. And he says over and over again, you did it, you did it, you did it. The verbs are powerful too, you see. You handed him over to be killed. You disowned him. You asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life. From time to time when I'm preaching, usually without these thoughts in mind at all, I'll say something about the death of Jesus and how the Jewish leaders conspired to hand him over to Pilate and how Pilate had him crucified. And whenever a study like that that I do is recorded and then appears on the radio later, as many of my messages do, I always get letters from people that object to the reference to the Jews having anything to do with the death of Jesus Christ. And that's understandable, of course, because that's a very sensitive point in Judaism. But I notice that sensitive as it may be, it certainly had never been any more sensitive than it was in this day. And Peter, when he stood up to preach, didn't allow sensitivity to stand in the way. He did not say, notice, you Jews as the exclusion of everybody else. He didn't mean that at all. Certainly Pilate had done it. When he talks about wicked men, it wasn't the Jews who were the wicked men. It was the Romans, the wicked men who had actually put him to death. But you see, that isn't where Peter is at. Peter is saying, look, it doesn't make any difference what 
group of people I talked to, you were all to blame for it in one way or another. And you and I are to blame for the death of Jesus Christ too, even though we were not there at the time he was arrested and tried and crucified, because it's our sins that took him there. And if Jesus was here today, we would spurn him today, apart from the grace of God, just as surely as they spurned him in the days of his flesh in Jerusalem so long ago. So when Peter speaks of human guilt, as he does, when he speaks of handing him over and disowning him and killing him. This is something that embraces the attitude of every human heart. But now thirdly, not only does he point to Jesus, focus on him, and speak of their guilt, making it very clear that they have something to repent of, he begins then to appeal to them. Because you see, he's not interested in the final analysis and condemning them. No advantage to that. He wants them to turn from the sin and have faith in Jesus. And so he begins to make his appeal. And he says in verse 17, as he starts this section of his address, now, brothers, it's interesting, you see, he doesn't treat them as aliens. And indeed, how could he? Because when he said earlier, you disowned him, you disowned him, he repeated that twice. That's the very thing that Peter himself had done. You know, he denied Christ when he was arrested, and he knew that. And so he doesn't stand aloof now as he begins to appeal to these people, explaining what had happened. He calls them brothers. Brothers, he says, now, listen, I know you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. Doesn't make them any less guilty. They were guilty, all right. The leaders hated him, especially. The mob was just carried along as mobs are. But nevertheless, he says, he's trying to, to, to make it as easy as he possibly can. He said, you did it in ignorance, but uh, this is what God had said would happen, and so it did. When I have been reading the commentaries as they talk about this, a uh, number of them call attention to something that existed in Israel. It's not referred to here, but it's an illustration of what's going on. In Israel, there were certain cities set aside that were called cities of refuge. And if somebody in Israel uh, accidentally uh, killed uh, someone else, uh, he was able to flee to one of these cities. They weren't intended to protect real murderers. If somebody intentionally went out and killed somebody, well, then he was to be judged and tried for that, uh, just as anybody else would. But if it was accidental, if, if there was a, what we would call manslaughter, instead of murder, why he could flee to the city of refuge, and then he was protected there as long as he would stay there. None of the avenging relatives could come and get him, and he was safe there. He had to stay there until the high priest died. When the high priest died, then he was free, and he could go home. And what some of the commentators have said by way of illustration is that there's something like that going on here. Peter has just said that they're all guilty of murder, but it's almost as if Peter is saying God is willing to treat it merely as manslaughter. He'll take it on that level if you'll flee to the refuge that he provides for you. Because, says Peter, I know you, you did it in ignorance. Oh, we're guilty when we, when we spurn the love of God. We're certainly to blame when we reject Jesus Christ, as we all do apart from his grace. But it is true, isn't it, at the same time, that we, we do do it in ignorance. Because we really don't know God. We really don't understand the gospel. It's one of the things it means to be a, a sinful man or a woman. We just don't think spiritually. And here is Peter saying, well, 
yes, I understand that, and, and God is willing to treat it as manslaughter rather than murder if you'll flee to the place of refuge and come to have faith in Jesus Christ. And of course, that's what he now calls upon them to do. Verse 19, repent then, he says, and turn to God. The two always go together, you know. Some people say, well, I feel sorry for my sins. Isn't that enough? No, that's not enough. Sin is, by its very nature, something that quite often makes us feel sorry we've done it. But it's not enough to feel sorry for it. That is not repentance. Repentance is feeling sorry enough to quit. That's how a child once defined repentance. And quitting means turning from the sin to Jesus Christ. And so that's what Peter says, repent then and turn to God. He holds forth some inducements as he does that. And you know, that's the thing I'd like to look at here just as we close. He says, repent and turn to God, and then he begins to explain why they ought to do that. First of all, he says, so that your sins may be wiped out, that is, so you might have forgiveness. That's the only place you ever find forgiveness, really. Uh, forgiveness is what people need. Uh, director of a large mental institution in England said some years ago in the company of John Stott, I could send half of my patients home tomorrow if only they could feel forgiven. And see, people, even though don't, they don't acknowledge it, carry around with them a great load of guilt. It may be the case that that's what you're carrying around tonight. You're not talking about it. You're not telling other people what it is you've done. Why, if you told them that, you'd be afraid of what might happen. But it's on your mind. You remember it. You know what you've done. You carry that around with you day by day and week by week and year by year, and it keeps you from being what you might otherwise be. You don't find forgiveness in the world. The world isn't capable of giving you forgiveness. The world is capable of judging sin, but it's not capable of forgiving sin. They said in the days of Christ's ministry when he spoke on one occasion and said to a man, son, your sins be forgiven you, who can forgive sins but God only? They were absolutely right. They didn't recognize that he was God, and therefore he had the right to forgive sin, but in their theology they were right. Only God can forgive. And here is Peter saying, look, this is a great inducement to turn from sin and, and believe in Jesus Christ because in him you really do find forgiveness. Why? How do you know you find forgiveness? Where is the satisfaction there that you do not find in the world? You find the satisfaction there in knowing that Jesus Christ bore the punishment and penalty of your sin. He died in your place, and it's on the basis of that, that true, real, vital, vigorous satisfaction that you find release from the burden. And so if you are burdened by those things if it weighs you down so much that sometimes you, you feel you almost have a headache because of the remembrance of what you've done. Then come to Jesus because that's where you find forgiveness that you'll never find anywhere else. And then Peter speaks of something else. He speaks of times of refreshing. I guess that is understood in different ways. As I read it here, I think he's speaking of a final day of blessing. I think he is thinking in Old Testament terms as a final period of earth's history when Israel particularly will be blessed. He links it to the return of Jesus Christ. And all of that's very true. I, I think he's saying that when Israel repents and turns, then the final age of blessing will come. But even apart from that, you know, in Christianity, there really is such a thing as refreshing. We go through an awful lot of life, much of the time, feeling pretty stale in what we do. We are like the, the horse that eats the same thing every day. 
hay and oats. Hay and oats on Monday, oats and hay on Tuesday, hay and oats on Wednesday, oats and hay on Thursday, and so forth. And you, you find as you go on in life, especially if you're in an unrewarding kind of job, that it's all, all stale. Sometimes even your Christianity seems stale. You say, well, I've been coming to, to church uh, every week. I, I come uh, again and again, but somehow it just isn't what it used to be. I, I feel so flat when I come. Well, that, that's true. That happens. We go through dry spells. Sometimes in the Middle Ages, the mystics used to speak about the dark night of the soul. It wasn't because they were far from God. They just felt far from God. We, we know those things. Sometimes it's physical. You know, you just are in bad health, and it affects the way you have outlooks on what's around you. Sometimes it's the weather. The weather affects me. Sometimes I come in on a, on a Monday or a Tuesday, and I feel like I'm going through the dark night of the soul. It's only because the sun isn't shining. I, I'm depressed because of the weather. It's all, all kinds of reasons, you see. But what we're told is that in Christ there really are periods of refreshing. Haven't you known that? Times when it seems that Jesus is so real and the gospel is so vivid that your whole soul is revived. Well, Peter says, if you want that, if you want times of refreshing, those times that make life really worth living, when you say, oh, it's good to be a Christian, I'm so glad God created me and that he made me for this hour and this time and put me in this place. Well, then he says, you find that as you turn from sin and follow after Jesus. There's a, another inducement here also, and I find that at the very end in verse 26. It's something that applied particularly to them. After Peter gets through saying that all of this is in God's way of fulfilling prophecy, and they ought to know that because these are their books, after he quotes from Deuteronomy 18 and from 22nd chapter of Genesis, when he gets right to the end, he says, when God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. That word first is the word I find interesting, first to you. To who was that? Well, to the Jews, yes. First to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. That's a principle we find elsewhere, but more than that, because, you see, it's not just all Jews that Peter is preaching to on this occasion. He's preaching to the Jews that were instrumental in the death of Jesus Christ. That's what he's referring to. That's what he said earlier. These are the ones who handed him over to be killed, disowned him, asked that a murderer, Barabbas, be released to them, and Jesus be crucified, and, as he said, killed the author of life. It's to these people, these very ones who had been instrumental in the greatest crime in human history, that God now comes with the gospel of salvation first. You see, it's, it's God's way of saying, I know what you have done, but I don't hold that over you. I love you anyway. It's precisely for people like you that I sent Jesus Christ, my son, to die. And so I come to offer the gospel to you first of all. Now, you and I can't say that we've done those things in a literal sense, and we can't say that God has sent his servant to us first of all. Many people have come to Christ first before us down through the long ages of human history, but the principle is the same. You see, regardless of what you may have done, 
regardless of the low self-image you have had, regardless of the guilt you may carry, God sends his son to you. And the reason the gospel is proclaimed to you is because God wants to say it is for someone just like you that Jesus died. There's no greater message in all the world than that. That's why we don't stand in a pulpit and read poetry and talk about that or, or discuss novels or, or try to have some insights about current events. That may be very interesting in its place. But you say, that's not the great message. The message is that the God of the universe, the God who created everything we know, the God who made you and against whom you have rebelled and whom you killed or would kill if you had the opportunity to do it, that God loves you in spite of what you are. And he sent Jesus Christ to rescue you from that and make you into something splendid, a replica of Jesus that will live with him throughout all eternity. Oh, that's, that's a glorious, a glorious message. My, my friend uh, R.C. Sproul uh, was in the prisons once with Chuck Colson and one of the prisoners was speaking and he was trying to talk about that gospel to the prisoners and he said as he got to the end of his testimony, now men, if that doesn't turn you on, you ain't got no switches. <laughs> and I say the same thing to you now. That message that Peter preached here and that I have tried to share with you in contemporary terms, if that doesn't turn you on, it's because you lack the switch. And what we pray is that God will, will do that, that God will ignite that fire in your heart so you really will turn from sin and come to Jesus. Let us pray. Our Father, we don't need to preach novelties because the novelties come and go and they don't produce any lasting change. What we preach what we've tried to preach, what I've tried to teach tonight is the same message that your servants have been preaching for all these thousands of years and which you've been blessing down through all these centuries. And so our Father, bless it. Bless it because it's your message. Bless it because it's about Jesus Christ, your Son. Bless it because it comes to us through your word, which you promised to bless. Bless it perhaps above all because you love those who hear it and are not willing that any should perish, but that all might come to repentance. Our Father, bless that message to hearts right now. In the power of the Holy Spirit, for the sake of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from the Bible Study Hour, a listener-supported ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance is a coalition of believers that hold to the historic creeds and confessions of the Reformed faith and who proclaim biblical doctrine in order to foster a Reformed awakening in today's church. To learn more about the Alliance, select the appropriate link at thebiblestudyhour.org. Write to us at 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601. Your financial support makes our broadcasting, publishing, online, and event ministries possible. 
please consider making a gift at our websites by phone at 1-800-488-1888 or by mail. Canadian listeners can reach us at P.O. Box 24097, RPO Josephine, North Bay, Ontario, P1B0C7. Thank you for your prayers and gifts and for listening to the Bible Study Hour, preparing you to think and act biblically.